June Thomas welcoming you to The Afterword, a brand new podcast in which I'll be talking with the authors of non-fiction books. My guest is Robert Newworth, whose book Stealth of Nations, The Global Rise of the Informal Economy has just been released by Pantheon Books. Robert, thank you for coming into our somewhat informal West Village studios. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So what's this book about? Uh, what do you mean by the informal economy? Well, the way I define it, the informal economy is all the businesses that fly under the radar that uh, are not getting licensed, not getting, uh, in most cases, taxed, mm -hmm. uh, not getting registered, um, but nonetheless are non criminal in the sense that I'm not talking about drug dealing, I'm not talking about uh, organ harvesting or yeah. human slavery or gun running. Uh, I'm really talking about legal product dealt with in a quasi-legal way. Okay. Now, most of the time you use the term System D mm -hmm. rather than informal economy or gray market or right, off the books exactly. or any of those other terms. The reason for that is basically that I feel informal is a kind of pejorative term. Mm. It links the criminal and the non-criminal in ways that I think cloud the issues of what this kind of trade is all about. System D, I pirated uh, <laughs> from the uh, French colonies in Africa and, and the Caribbean. Uh, there's a French word, uh, débriard, to describe a man or woman as a débriard is to say that they're self-reliant and ingenious. And the uh, in the colonial reality, they've sort of taken this term and applied it to the street economics. So they, they call the informal economy l'économie de la débriardise, which kind of means the DIY economy, the the self-reliant economy. And uh, I think that that says two things. One is it breaks the connection to criminality, and the other is that it does acknowledge that this is more systematic than most people look at it. It's not – a street market is not just cacophony. It's organized. The merchants have their places that they go every day. And so in that sense, it is a system. Mm. Now, can you talk about how you distinguish between informal and illegal? Why – these people, as you say, are, they generally don't have uh, licenses, pay mm -hmm. taxes. Uh, it's, it's really uh, what I would look at as an element of criminal law. It's not a criminal offense not to have a license. It is a criminal offense to sell drugs. Okay. And society has agreed upon what the grievous, the most grievous offenses are, and those are criminals. So, mm -hmm. you know, some people may object, may disagree, but prostitution is considered mm -hmm. a criminal offense, uh, gun running and uh, those kinds of things. And so I would argue that there's a big difference between a kid hawking oranges on the side of the road and a rogue network to sell nukes. Yeah. Um, and, and to conflate those two things is, I think, really to miss the point of, of uh, uh, a very strong global phenomenon. The statistics show that there's uh, half the workers of the world or about 1.8 billion people are working off the books. And these are not the people selling nukes. Yeah. These are the people selling socks um, or other products. Right. Well, one of the things I really loved about the book was that you traveled around the world doing mm -hmm. research. You went to Nigeria, Brazil, Paraguay, and you brought back really fascinating stories from those places. Um, Thank you. Now, for example, you say Lagos, Nigeria may well be the first city in the world to be designed in large part by System D. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe some of the many manifestations of the informal economy that you encountered in Well, Lagos? sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I should give the caveat at the outset that, of course, there was a road structure that had been created uh, by the British when they controlled Nigeria as a colony. Um, but that was years ago when the population 
population of the city was 250,000. Now the population of the city is somewhere between 9 and 17 million, depending on who you believe. And uh, so uh, without the concomitant injection of new infrastructure, um, people have just figured out how to uh, develop a city. And so you've got areas where um, markets have grown up at the side of the road and have basically, um, without building permits and without all sorts of planning, have created a cityscape on their own. And so uh, Lagos is a kind of exercise in DIY. Uh, Everything uh, in the infrastructure is ancient and the people just have figured out how to make these things kind of work haphazardly. It's a city without a water system. So System D came up with uh, a novel concept of putting water in baggies and they call this pure water and it was sold all over the streets. This is changing now that the System D merchants tried to raise the price. And because they raised the price, people are now buying uh, con- conventional bottled water, mm. which is still a system D enterprise in a lot of ways, but 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 is not the same thing. But similarly, there's uh, not a stable electrical grid. There is electricity, uh, but very seldom. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, these and unreliable. The, yeah, the power company in Nigeria used to be called uh, the National Electric Power Association (NEPA), and people joke that uh, NEPA stands for Never Expect Power Always. So. <laughs> Because there's so seldom power, and one day when I was there, I remember uh, the power came on at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and everyone went hurrah, and we all went to plug in and charge our mobile phones, and the power went off after 20 seconds and was off for 24 hours. Um, So System D brought in diesel-powered generators, and this is the power system of Mm -hmm. Lagos. Every fancy hotel has a phalanx of huge diesel engines that are running the hotel, the air conditioning, the stoves, everything. Um, Every internet center has a lawnmower-sized diesel generator, and many households have a tiny vacuum Mm cleaner-sized diesel generator that powers one or two feeble light bulbs. So the entire infrastructure of the city has basically been remade according to this somewhat haphazard but uh, street resilient kind of concept. Now people buy the things that they eat, all of the things that they yeah. use in street markets and in informal systems. Absolutely. Lagos is like the world's largest street market yeah. and every place you go there's kiosks and people are selling uh, fabric and uh, bread and uh, newspapers of course. Right. I mean the guy used to walk through my neighborhood uh, carrying the newspapers on his head and he had a little horn <laughs> and, and you would pay him for the newspaper and of course he was totally off the books. I mean mm-hmm. he obviously paid paid something for the papers to the newspaper company, but he didn't report the income he had. And the same thing was true with restaurants, none of which had licenses. And it's just like that throughout the city, all the way up to electronics, computers. Uh, Ikeja Computer Village is a massive market of uh, computers, the largest computer market in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, People from all over Africa come there to buy computers, and it's all done by unlicensed traders who import and export and and sell everything from operating systems to uh, hardware and software and uh, flash drives. You also spent a bunch of time in border areas around the world where System D often thrives. Mm -hmm. Um, I was fascinated by the story of the Sacoleiros who travel every week from Sao Paulo, Brazil to Mm -hmm. Ciudad del Este in Paraguay, just inside Paraguay. Why do they make that journey every single week and who are they? Brazil's a high tax country. Uh, the value-added tax and customs duties can sometimes wind up being 90% of the cost of a product. Mm. And Paraguay is essentially an almost no-tax country. So 
there developed a trade where people said, geez, we can buy things for essentially 90 percent less in Paraguay than we can in Brazil. Over time, it started out as just, you know, individual merchants would take the bus to the border. Uh, Ciudad del Este is one side of the Parana River and the other side is Foz do Iguaçu, Brazil. And they would cross the Friendship Bridge and uh, buy stuff and bring it back. Stores got wind of this and decided, well, this is a business model. And so they basically organized buses that make a weekly uh, – you know, journey of 16 hours from Sao Paulo to the uh, the border. They park and send a phalanx of buyers uh, across the river to buy stuff and, and bring it back. And that is a supply chain for the stores in Sao Paulo that sell discount merchandise. And you said that they give the shoppers a list. Oh, yeah, These, yeah, yeah. This, this is not, is not casual, individuals. This yeah. is not a casual thing anymore. This is highly organized. They get a free ticket there. They get a uh, free stay in, uh, you know, at the border. They get uh, free food and free beer. <laughs> and uh, they go shopping according to a very strong structured list. We want you to buy Chinese blankets and uh, um, garbage cans and notebooks and whatever else uh, might be desirable to sell on the streets of Sao Paulo. Now, the things that you're mentioning there are pretty small value items. I mean, they must be very cheap. Well, they is are. It, is it still worth it oh, for hugely. those cheap things? Be- because, uh, first of all, the price in Paraguay is so much lower. And then you can, from a whole other cadre of informal merchants, you can buy fake receipts, mm-hmm. which lower the cost probably by 90% again. So you're talking about a, a, a vast amount of trade. And if every sacolero, every person on the bus brings in $500 worth of goods, let's say, uh, across the border. And there is shopping. a limit to how much they can bring. Yeah, out. Brazil allows uh, $300 to come in duty-free and another $200 to come in at a reduced okay. uh, customs duty. So let's say you bring in your $500 worth of goods. Well, the prices in Paraguay are already so reduced that that's probably worth as much as a thousand or two thousand dollars worth of goods in uh, Brazil, and then um, you're talking about avoiding all the taxes and everything. So it mounts up. And if mm-hmm. you consider that, I mean, I saw a platoon of twelve buses mm-hmm. making the trip. So you add up forty people per bus times twelve buses, the value of this trade really mounts up. It's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And then in, in and so- not just one city, right? Yes, exactly. So people come from all over Brazil mm-hmm. to make this trade. Yeah. And you said that these things are all sold in Sao Paulo in this gigantic market. That- yeah, Rua Vinci Cinco de Marzo, the street of the 25th of March, um, which is a, a street just sort of down towards the river uh, from the business district of Sao Paulo. And everyone knows that this is this huge market and they go there and uh, you make your deals. You know, there are pirated goods there too. There's You can buy New York Yankees caps in <laughs> camouflage and dots and bright pink and all sorts of crazy colors. And of course, they're not authorized by the Yankees. You know, the uh, soccer jerseys of your favorite uh, Brazilian football team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are different qualities. There are yeah. really bad fakes where the ink's all dripping and there are really good fakes that are totally in- indistinguishable from the real thing. Reading this book, I actually started to feel a little bit um, reactionary. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really felt that people should be paying taxes. So I want to kind of share with you some of my uh, some of the responses that I had because I know mm-hmm. in the book you address them really very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but first.
You're listening to The Afterword, a new Slate podcast about nonfiction books and their authors. Pantheon Books has been kind enough to send us four copies of Stealth of Nations, and Rob has signed them. If you would like one of them, send an email to slateafterword at gmail.com by January 6th, and we'll choose four winners at random. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any other feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. So, Robert, we were talking about my reactionary responses. A lot of the stories are about people who, as you said, are working without registering or being regulated, who don't respect intellectual property and for the Mm -hmm. most part don't pay taxes. Now, obviously, that means that this massive sector of the economy, Mm -hmm. so maybe even half of the world's population, Mm -hmm. um, generating very little tax revenue for local, state or national governments. Isn't it reasonable to want or expect people to contribute to the general good? It is, but uh, the way I look at it is this way. Um, There are two things. First is that taxation is kind of a social contract, all right? And it's based on the understanding that government democratically as much as possible distributes the goodies that government can distribute, paved roads, water system, uh, you know, the, the, the things that uh, we expect government to do. And in many cases, particularly in uh, the developing world or what someone uh, I was listening to last week referred to as the majority world, <laughs> you know, in, in that context, governments are not so transparent. And not so fair. And you find, uh, example, when I was in Kenya, you know, why does the road to the president's house always get paved before anyone else's roads get paved? Um, Why does the poor community not get city services, not get water, not get paved roads, not get street lighting? So for people in the markets, it always seems like uh, they're giving their money to nothing. And as uh, many of the uh, folks in the markets uh, said to me in Lagos, I, I, it was almost the same words that, mm-hmm. uh, that I could follow from each merchant. You know, I'd, be, I'd love to pay my taxes if there was a government that was fair to pay my taxes too. If I knew that I was going to get that back in a fair way. They're not asking for everything, just in a fair way. So that's the first thing. The second part of it is that throughout history – Unlicensed businesses have been the way in to the economy for those that are traditionally excluded. And you can look at the United States as an example of that. Dick Sears was a station agent um, out in the Midwest. And he started selling watches to people on the trains as they passed through the station. And that was the root of the business that became Sears Roebuck, which for many decades was the largest retail business in America. The same thing is true of uh, Frederick Stanley, who before Stanley Tools became a formal company, was a tinker and told, mm-hmm. sold tools off a mule. So uh, Van Heusen Shirts is the same thing. The root of Van Heusen Shirts is a single street peddler in Philadelphia. So um, – This is the sort of incubator economy, and it's always functioned that way. As long as people have the time to develop their businesses, they then begin to think about, okay, so how can we make this more systematic? How can we make this more formal? And what is my relationship to the government? And I should also say that um, there is a third component, which is that many of these businesses, although they're not paying taxes in the same way that – formal businesses might be, are in fact paying the government through informal arrangements. So in Lagos, 
every person who deals in a street market is paying what's known as a daily ticket to the local government. And that basically means that they're buying non-harassment from the police. Now, that ticket, the money from that ticket is not transparent, and they're very angry about that, but they're already paying the government. The idea would be to make that ticket more transparent Mm -hmm. and actually have that money go into the general fund rather than into some official's pocket. Isn't System D unfair to those individuals or companies that are paying the taxes and the required licenses? Um, Aren't those people then the victims of unfair competition? Well, it doesn't seem to work that way. You know, people who go to street markets know what they're buying. And if you're buying a fake Gucci bag, let's say even here in New York, and it's been – the trade has changed quite a bit, but it used to be you could go down to Canal Street and you could buy uh, fake uh, Coach or Gucci or Chanel bags. Everyone knows they're getting a fake. Mm -hmm. The merchant knows he's selling a fake. The buyer knows that they're not getting a real Gucci. And that functions, I should say, the the firms complain about it massively, but it functions as free brand advertising for all these uh, major brands. And, and secondarily, street markets draw people. So what I discovered in Sao Paulo, for instance, on Rua Vinci Cinco de Marzo, is that the legal merchants on the street like having the street merchants, the camelos, as they're known in uh, Portuguese, because the camelos bring crowds. There's 400,000 people going shopping there every day and on holidays a million people. No. And they wouldn't come there just to go to the regular stores. But – All of those shoppers look in the regular stores and buy in the regular stores. So it's actually served in that situation to increase business. So the competition has actually been good for the legitimate businesses. Hmm. Now, you were just talking then about those fake Coach and Gucci and so on Mm -hmm. bags. As a person who makes his living from his ideas, sure. you know, you do seem a little relaxed about international – I mean, Well, you know, problems. there is – look, I'll admit I have a book contract. I get a percentage according to the contract and I'm certainly not urging people to uh, pirate the book here in the States. But on the other hand, the book would never sell at the price point it is here in the States in Nigeria. Mm. And uh, if someone pirates the book in Nigeria, it's no skin off my back because I'm not selling any books in Nigeria anyway. I would love to sell books Mm -hmm. in Nigeria, Mm -hmm. but that's not the marketplace there. And if the book can be distributed there and people can read it and get something out of it, I would support that. And similarly in Brazil, you find that books in Brazil cost about the same that they cost here. But people's income is much less. So uh, as a commodity, um, it's – impossible to expect that all but the wealthiest people are going to be able to afford to buy books at a kind of American price. So, And there's a, there was a wonderful essay in uh, Granta magazine a while back, and I cited in the book, mm-hmm. by the uh, uh, Peruvian-American writer Daniel Alarcón, mm-hmm. who writes in English, but his books have been translated back down in Peru, and he Uh, It turns out that in Peru, being pirated is like being on the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. You know you're a popular author when your books are pirated and sold on the street. And uh, he accepts that very definitely down there. He even wants that. He felt complimented by having made it into the pirate And he list. negotiated for a cheaper price when uh. he bought his book down uh, from a pirate <laughs> I mean, when he purchased a copy yeah, yeah, of his yeah. own Yeah, he purchased a copy of his own book and he negotiated the guy down. So, you know, for, for, for him, this was a way of uh, making sure that his writings appear in Peru. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what about consumer protection? Um, you tell the story of David Mwangi, a Kenyan businessman who right. bought some goods in China, and then when they arrived in Africa, they were useless. They mm-hmm. were, you know. So when people buy from the informal economy, isn't there a greater risk of being ripped off? There, the I mean, fly by night feels like a judgment kind of description but you know if people don't have a set perch yeah, it's hard to it, follow it wouldn't up. have been good if i called the book the global rise yeah. of the fly by night economy <laughs> but but look yeah you know first of all we have to be vigilant everywhere right there's been uh, malfeasance uh in many many products and uh you know wasn't it uh, a year or two ago that mattel was caught up in uh, lead paint on kids toys mm-hmm. being put on by a completely legitimate formal factory in china so it's not uh, this is not the realm of uh, the informal economy purely it's not system d that is doing this uh, it's sort of wired into the dna of businesses and this is something that uh, you know bernard mandeville talked about in his theories of uh, economics back uh, 300 years ago four Hundred years ago now, so you know the, the the trade has a bit of deceit in it, and we have to always be wise to the way that people are pulling the wool over our eyes. That being said, it's really important to have some levels of protection on the most critical products. So I would not support drug piracy. Um, creating bogus pharmaceuticals. Right. I think that's, that's a wrong. big problem in Nigeria. Uh, as we were talking about at the beginning, that's part of the criminal economy, mm-hmm. not part of System D, according mm-hmm. to me. And I do believe that there are ways that the Nigerian version of the Food and Drug Administration has been very successful. It's called NAFDAC. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what right, the right. Uh, acronym stands for. But NAFDAC has been very successful in working with informal companies to put the imprimatur of safety mm-hmm. on their products. And I think that would be a great thing to do to even help the informal sector mm-hmm. brand itself as legitimate and above board in terms of public safety. Uh, you know, as far as what happened to David Mwangi and, and, and his patch cords for, uh, you know, USB cables, look, I bought a spool of wire at Radio Shack. And uh, I discovered that when I got it home that there were places – it was 100 feet long and there were places in it where the wire was just way too thin and it wouldn't conduct current. So it even happens but to – But you could take it back to – I did take it back and, and uh, you know, David as a wholesaler faces the problem that he can't. But some of the higher end uh, – what I was told by a uh, auto parts counterfeiter is that the <laughs> higher end counterfeits actually offer guarantees. And so you can bring them back and that's why people pay a certain premium for the higher end fake than the lower end fake. So you have to just be careful of your yeah, price point. you have point. to be careful of your price point and you have to be very aware and test every single product if you're buying in bulk. You talked about some women here in New York City who make food in their home kitchens and mm-hmm. then sell it either in high-end coffee shops in one case or in in one uh, example, um, a person sold her words as a street vendor. Yeah. Um, you make a good case that these women need the income and that they can't afford the licenses or to mm-hmm. comply with the food preparation laws. Um, but not necessarily in those specific cases, but just in general, I mean, mm-hmm. those rules aren't there only to protect big companies. Um, That's true. But look, um, we have to look at what rules make sense and what rules don't. This is what I would argue. Does it really make sense to require that every single product that is offered for sale, food product that is offered for sale, is made in a commercial kitchen? Because if you're doing baking 
or any kind of pre-preparation. That is the requirement according to law. There's no small-scale merchant that can pass that test because commercial kitchens cost too much to rent. Mm -hmm. It's thousands and thousands of dollars per month to uh, make that happen. And the street merchants, uh, by definition, don't have that kind of money. Mm -hmm. So – uh, I wonder if that kind of I, – I at least think we should have a conversation about whether that kind of regulation makes sense. Similarly, New York City hasn't increased the number of street vending licenses in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, does that really make sense? That's a kind of protectionism for the vendors who were lucky enough to get them. And what it has done is raise the cost of buying a license mm-hmm. um, so that – these vendors hold on to their licenses even after they leave street selling and they rent them for exorbitant amounts of money or they sell them for exorbitant amounts of money, sometimes you know, fifty, dollars $100,000 to get a street vending license. Which is license. great system D. Right. It's great system D for them, but it also shuts other people yeah. out. And so we should look at whether our licensing requirements are way too strict. You know, regulation exists for a reason, and I'm certainly sensitive to that. But I think we have to look at whether the regulations that we have make sense and whether we're squashing people from making an income for no particularly good reason. Mm -hmm. In the book, uh, in the last chapter, you talk about a guy in Lagos who set up a toll booth and now charges a toll of everyone who wants to enter this city's big marketplace, merchants, customers Mm -hmm. alike. Um, Now, he was the only character in the book where I felt (laughs) that you, you really felt and it was clear that you felt that he was acting unfairly, that his system D was yes. not cool. Yes. Um, so what line did he cross? What was unacceptable about the way he was operating? Well, here I kind of borrow a distinction that the Nigerians make, and it's a rather uh, funny distinction for us. But they differentiate between bribery and appreciation. <laughs> um, and, you know, if someone helps you with their business yeah. and you pay them a couple of bucks – um, that's not a bribe in Nigerian terms. Mm-hmm. And that's considered depreciation. And you might look at it as an analog to a legal practice that goes on here in the States where if you want rush service, you pay more. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, If you want your garments cleaned in an hour, you're going to pay more than getting them dry cleaned mm-hmm. in a day. So they make that distinction. And – the similar distinction is is that if you're paying a police officer not to give you a ticket or to do his job, that's a bribe. It, it's, it's different than getting help. In it's an inducement in some right. way. And so I see this guy as sort of setting himself up to be receiving these bribes in a sense because just because he's strong and he's got a bunch of guys that can intimidate people and he's politically well-connected, he's given himself – an income that benefits nobody except himself. And he's preventing um, other people so, from right. making so it So if they were charging a toll that went towards cleaning the market or plantings around the market, I would say, well, you know, that's a, a use of System D that's interesting. And if this guy gets a little bit of profit out of that but is providing a concrete benefit to everyone, then I might have a different viewpoint. But because he's only sticking the money in his pocket, yeah, I, I do see him as an old-fashioned pirate mm-hmm. who's just using force to uh, pillage every person who passes by. I'm, I'm convinced. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, did researching and writing this book change your life at all? I mean, have you become more entrepreneurial? Are you Have you got a little System D thing going on? 
on in the side? Well, you know, I thought about doing the research for the book by actually st- starting as a street merchant or buying a motorcycle taxi in Lagos <laughs> and becoming the only non-Nigerian who's Oimbo, like, Okada. Yeah, yeah, they could be Oibo Okada or Nyocha, they would shout for me. And actually, I would have become very famous in Nigeria for doing this, which would have been kind of comical. But I didn't want the story to be about me. You know, the story is about them. I came to recognize the entrepreneurial spirit as something really key um, in humanity and, and, and uh, that do it yourself and I'm going to survive in some way, somehow, uh, making it work kind of spirit. And so it, it made me take much more of an attitude. Look, I'm not out there in, in System D buying my books, let's say, for half price at the Strand and right. then selling them for 25% off on the street and cheating uh, my publisher out right. of their share of the royalties. So I'm not yet doing that, although maybe that's a good business <laughs> plan. But, but look, it certainly made me more cognizant of uh, the value of entrepreneurialism and the value of applying that kind of spirit in every aspect of life, the can-do kind of spirit. And I, I guess I didn't quite have that viewpoint before. You know, I never thought I would ever write a book about business. Um, I did, and, <laughs> uh, and it was an amazing revelation to me in that regard because I see the business spirit as really important now. Yeah. Well, it was really a wonderful book. Uh, I found it very thank stimulating you. and fascinating. Um, and thank you so much for coming in oh, and talking to me about pleasure, it. It's been a great pleasure, Thanks. That was Robert Newworth, author of Stealth of Nations, The Global Rise of the informal economy, which is available in bookstores now or from Robert on the street corner. Uh, if you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. June Thomas.